is the Eminem Planet Podcast, episode 69. I'm your host, Joel Amidon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. Today on the podcast, we have uh, a living legend, math ed legend, Johnny Lott. Uh, he's probably not going to like it that I said that, but guess what? It's true. So Johnny Lott, uh, just a little bit of background, was the president of NCTM, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, when I first decided to become a math teacher. And NCTM um, started the standards. They're, they were at the forefront of standards uh, development. Uh, the University of Wisconsin was also at the center of that area. But anyway, Johnny Lott was right there in the, in the thick of it uh, when I was becoming um, just familiar with what does it mean to teach mathematics. And uh, so I knew him. He was my, like... He was at the head of that organization when I was first joining NCTM. I'll talk about that in this episode a little bit about uh, my first NCTM regional, which was in Madison, uh, where we got a chance to volunteer because of uh, Meg Meyer's connections with that organization. Anyway, he's impressive. Um, and the thing is, he's so humble. Um, he has done so much and he's so giving of his time and just, I was just so thankful that he was willing to sit down for, uh, or sit down and, and virtually talk with me, uh, about some of his experiences, some of his learnings, and then just what we can extract from this conversation about how to teach better, which is again, the whole point of Amazon planet, uh, this, and this podcast. So, uh, and just to put a highlight and I'll put a link to this in the show notes. He was the 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award recipient for NCTM uh, for all of his contributions to mathematics education. Um, he's an impressive guy, and I'm so glad I get to share this conversation with you. So we'll have a lot of links, a lot of things that he's talked about within the show notes. Uh, but without further delay, here is my conversation with Dr. Johnny Lott. Johnny Lott, so good to have you on the Abaddon Planet podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm getting older by the minute, but I'm doing well. We just got back from a trip to Portugal and had a great time. Yeah, you, you, uh, your travel experiences. I, I, I get to, you know, watch through the the Facebook, I think, and then uh, get to see all these different places you get to go. I'm, I'm just, I'm excited. It, you, you do some interesting things, Johnny. So, what can I say? Then, We're travel junkies. <laughs> hey, awesome. That's great. Uh, yeah, I was just talking to somebody this morning about like how we just never traveled all that much. And then it took my wife like arranging trips and like, oh, wow, travel is pretty awesome. So like, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it, loving it. Um, so, Johnny, you and I have known each other, I think, for 11 years. And I think I'll remember the, I'm gonna, the first time I, we met, we were at the Center for the Math and Science here at the University of Mississippi. Um, I was sitting down, it was like a journal, like a, we had an article that we were reviewing and maybe discussing. It was kind of like a, I don't know, I'd say like a math ed coffee hour sort of thing where I come in, we'll talk about something and, uh, you know, build some community, but then also talk about some research and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden you slide in, you're like Johnny Lott. I'm like, and former NCTM president, Johnny Lott. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Hi. Nice to meet you. I'm Johnny. <laughs> and from there, it was like, oh, wow, this, this is pretty awesome that I uh, get to have these conversations with you. So, uh, again, like it's, it's just it's been a pleasure ever since. So thanks, Johnny. <laughs> Joel, thank you for that. But I will tell you, it's been great having you at the University of Mississippi. I mean, you're a great addition here. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So um, and you again, we, we just mentioned that you're former president of NCTM. But I mean, your history with teaching goes goes back a little ways um well a lot ways but we'll say <laughs> well, i want to know how did you how did you get started in teaching and, and one thing too your facebook is awesome because you'll put these like historical like these photos from like back when at, which are awesome of like you know when first teaching and all that sort of thing but anyway I'm, I'm just curious how did you get started in teaching um i probably didn't get started for in teaching for all the right reasons joel um <laughs> When I was in college, the Vietnam War was going on, oh, okay? okay? And just as I was graduating in 1965, um, I, was, I had applied for and had been accepted to a graduate program at then Memphis State University in math. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to my father about it, who was a World War II vet, and he says, you know, you better go talk to your draft board <laughs> before mm -hmm. you do this. And a little county, West Tennessee, yeah, I yeah. called the draft board. And I even knew the guy who was chair of, of it for the county. And he said, well, if you go to graduate school, 
you might have three months before we draft you. Okay, this was in 1965. And we had more conversations. And I learned along the way that if you were a math or science teacher, you could have deferments possibly during the year while Mm. you were teaching. So I had a I had a math major and I had a math minor in education and I did, did done student teaching, which I loved which is really my first experience with it, but at Jackson Southside High School in Tennessee. And so this gets worse. I wandered into the education main office on our little campus at Union University, and they were doing group interviews for teaching jobs in DeKalb County, Georgia. I was totally unprepared for something like that. And I was sitting there just talking with some of the people who were ready to go in for their interview. And the gentleman came out and said, okay, I'm ready for the next group. Well, they left and I was still standing there. He says, don't you want to come in too? And I said, well, I wasn't really signed up for this. (laughs) And he said, well, come on in anyway. So I went in. He wanted to know what my major was and it was math. Then he offered me a teaching job and right outside Atlanta. So I talked it over with Carolyn because we were engaged by then and mm-hmm. she had another year in school and we knew that it would be tough, but we decided that I'd go teach math in DeKalb County, Georgia. Wow. Wow. I mean, what, a, I mean, I mean, there's a nudge, right? A nudge into the classroom. <laughs> not maybe not the it traditional. Was, that's what I said. It wasn't exactly the right reasons for getting there, but once I got there, I knew I was where I belonged yeah. because I love the kids and I love teaching. It was like, a total culture shock growing up in rural West Tennessee. And my first teaching job was in a high school of 1200 at Lakeside high school in DeKalb County. It was, and it was a school that DeKalb County had a policy then where they were building schools in stages. You had start a high school at a, an existing high school, spend two years there. And by the third year they'd have the building open. Well, I got there the third year when the building was open. So we moved into this school that really wasn't finished. So I taught classes, double, we double taught classes, meaning you put two teachers in a room with too many children or students, uh, and they weren't children exactly, and I did that, and I had a crazy teaching schedule the first year, team taught two classes, um, a pre-calculus class and an algebra one class with a department chair, I had a geometry class on my own. I had a, an eighth grade math class on my own. And I had another algebra one class with a different teacher. <laughs> so every day the teaching preparations were just insane. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, because even though there were two algebra one classes in there, it was always two different preps because I was team teaching with two different people. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but that's the way I started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, uh, and great kids, by the way. Absolutely yeah. fantastic kids. And so, so starting there with that, that unique experience of like, well, to get into teaching, but then also to the, your first job, like then what, and, and maybe we're, we're kind of fast forwarding a lot, but what led then to Montana? <laughs> like, like, well, um, I taught four years in a public high school, mm-hmm. uh, and finished a master's degree at Emory okay. through the national science foundation. And I had a friend who was teaching, who was in that master's program with me, who convinced me that I should go to a college prep school that he taught in, in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I did that for one year, but knew that was not quite the right fit for me yeah. and started looking at graduate schools. I looked, uh, I wound up going to Georgia State. Uh, their program was just barely beginning. It yeah, wasn't yeah. even official yet when I was admitted but the math department offered me a half-time teaching job at the university there. And so I taught half-time and kept taking classes. And Tom Brisky was a great advisor, the one whom I first met. And he was a fantastic person. He talked me into it. I stayed there for a while. I finished the degree. And then the math department offered me a full-time job. And I did that for one year, but I decided I was always going to be a student as long as I was teaching in the the department where I essentially got the degree. So Carol and I had our son then. I resigned and started looking for jobs, went to the annual NCTM meeting in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and met two people from Montana, and they offered me a visiting appointment for nine months. Carol and I sold what little we had. 
took off, took ours to Montana. We'd never been out there. We knew nothing about it, but one of the math department members had was on sabbatical and rented us his house for almost nothing. So we stayed there a year. They offered me another one-year visiting appointment, stayed there again. And during that second year, they offered me a 10-year track job. Wow. So I stayed, I went for nine months and stayed 32 and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great, great move for both of us. But, I love it. It's like this path was just the, the Johnny Lott path has been plowed through. Oh, like, it, it was uh, it's kind it of was unique. not exactly normal. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then it, I mean. In Montana, I mean, one, striking campus. Oh, my goodness. Um, but two, like the things that you did there. So, like, you know, when you got to there in, in higher ed and your your position, like, so, you know, in 32 years, you talk about, like, what did what were the things that you engaged in at, at Montana? Okay. Um, pretty immediately, Rick Bilstein, who was one of the colleagues whom I met who hired me, to, who helped hire me to get out there, mm-hmm. got me involved with the Montana Council of Teachers of Mathematics. Nice. And through that experience and in working with Rick, we did everything. There's, we worked with the council. The council had a very good relationship with both both major universities, Montana State University of Montana, the Mm -hmm. State Department of Education, and, and the council itself. And we, we did workshops everywhere. Rick wrote one of the original metric grants <laughs> metric classes in the 70s oh wow uh, and i got to know teachers everywhere it turned out to be a fantastic experience one of the things that i did that got me started somewhat along the way with some of the things we'll probably talk about later was they were looking for somebody to take over their newsletter mm. and it was and then the math enthusiast and it's original version was activities and things that teachers could do in their classroom. It since evolved into a research type publication Yeah, and it's still around, but in a very different format than its original version. Um, and that was done by another faculty member at the university of Montana to take it on way farther than it ever began. <laughs> but anyway, um, I didn't know. Those I mean, are just some of the things. I just, I like, because I love the, the Montana mathematics enthusiasts. And again, I knew it more from the research side, but the fact that you were there, it, it was a, it was a, the Montana yeah. Council of Teacher of Mathematics like newsletter? It was the MCTM. Well, there was the newsletter and then there was the math enthusiast. The okay. math enthusiast was the activities. They actually wound up doing both. But uh, the math enthusiast was more activities and it was started by Dan Dolan and Jim Williamson and they were Columbus high school teachers in a small town close to Billings. Yeah. And Dan was super influential all along the path in Montana, but it was, they're the ones that started it and it was an activity based publication. And then it just morphed over time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's funny. That's great. Uh, see, I'm I'm loving this conversation already. Here we go, learning learning something all the time. So, and some of the other, th- I mean, so obviously, you then you know, you got your job while visiting the national conference at NCTM in Atlantic City, which I can and not today, but NCTM was not around that. Long. How long has NCTM been around? Oh, that it, NCTM has been around since. It's over 100 years old. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. And um, it has a mixed start. There are questions of whether it was Illinois or somewhere else, but it was incorporated as an organization in Illinois. Okay. okay. And that was back in the 19s, 19 teens. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, so NCTM, uh, just to, for those that might not, so some of the major things that were happening with them, the standards that came out in 1989 that was 1989 standards that was huge um that was a big turning point for that organization i mean it was always sort of growing in a leader in the math ed field because of its publications and materials that and its meetings Mm -hmm. um but when glenda lappin was president she's not the one who started it but she was president when some of those standards came out and then one of the one of the major writers in that from Michigan State University, but there were many involved in that. Yeah. John Dossey and others. Uh, John Dossey is a former president from Illinois State, but 
many people put have pushed that organization along the way. Yeah. And, and 19- I, felt, I felt very happy to be a part of that along the way too. Yeah. So like, so then involved with NCTM and then, so then, you know, really involved in the local affiliate in Montana. And then, so then what happened to there? So what, what, what's, what led to you, you know, being involved in all the way up to the president of NCTM? Okay. Well, because of the math enthusiast and the work that I had done with that, um, I got a call asking me to be on one of the NCTM publication committees. That was Hmm. Then student math notes, which okay. has morphed and no longer exists in that form either. But that was a small group of people wrote these student math notes and came out. Uh, it, it morphed over time. Originally, it was about once a month. And then it became a less, not less popular, but it was a paper publication. Mm-hmm. And over time, it changed. But that's how it started. Yeah. And I wound up being chair of that committee before it was over. And when that ended, and I hated to see that end, but that's a small group of people that mostly did the writing of those things. Um, the next step was I got a call about being on the, the panel for the arithmetic teacher, the editorial mm-hmm. panel for the arithmetic yeah, yeah. teacher. And I was there as a part of that publication when it changed when the council decided that it wanted a middle school journal as well as the arithmetic teacher which was initially about k-8 or first through eighth grade publication and then it split so i was chair uh the last chair of the editorial panel of the arithmetic teacher and the first chair of the editorial panel of teaching children math (laughs) so and from there when that one ended I did a number of other committees along the way, but I was asked to run for president and was very fortunate. In fact, I've always said NCTM was very fortunate. I ran against Jim Rubillo. I won the election and became a board member of NCTM, and he was later the executive director of NCTM. So <laughs> I got both of us just in different ways. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome, NCTM. There you go. <laughs> and when were you president, Johnny? Uh, my term was basically 2000 to 2004. Okay. You have a year as uh, pre-president, president-elect, two years as president, and a year as past president. Right. So there was a regional in Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. I believe right in, in, that, in that window, I believe. I don't um, remember. I went to Mom Joel, but I'd have to look it up. That's right. Well, <laughs> I have to admit I, that was a time when the meetings were in person. Yeah. And the president went to all the regional meetings and many state meetings yeah. as well as the annual meeting. So, what well, I just remember because, like, you know, that was when I first joined NCTM and uh, was a you know volunteer at the local one, so I could go and and you know see all the you know. Geometer Sketchpad and the authors of Geometer Sketchpad, or like just you know mingle and see like people that are presenting this awesome stuff, and but then seeing like you know getting the president's message here from President Johnny Lott, and so like you know that's why like when I saw you, when you introduced yourself at CMSE, you know like the eleven years later, it was like oh my gosh, Johnny Lott. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one little story about NCTM. I mean, how I became a member. Long before I knew anything about NCTM, one of my favorite places to study in the library at Union University was in the stacks in the basement. Mm. And I always chose that there was one chair in stacks where you could sit and study. And I chose the one where the the math teacher was. Uh (laughs) And I didn't know anything about NCTM, but I loved that journal. I started picking it up and reading it all the time. And when I was a senior, my advisor as an undergraduate said, okay, if you're going to be a teacher, you got to be a member of NCTM. And I joined in 1965 and have been a member since. Well, it's cool. Like that you had a relationship with the organization before you were even a member, like through those journals and seeing the value of it and, and, probably using things that you were learning from it within your I classroom. I thought that was the greatest publication I'd ever seen. <laughs> I still like it, but. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the name, the name is your, t- you're like, like the name of the journal is what you do. I teach math. So mathematics, here you go. Fantastic. <laughs> like it's right it. lined up. <laughs> um, so like, and I, I do like that also too. Like you had, you were receiving some things already from this organization and then you got to be a, a member of it. But then, then it almost switched like, 
you started investing within that organization, both in the local affiliate and in the national organization. And so it's like, there's like a servant leadership kind of happening there. That, that's, I don't know. Did, did you feel like that call to like, Hey, I'm get I've gotten value from this organization. I feel like, I mean, cause it is work. I mean, a lot of it is unpaid work that you were investing this, this thing. Like, I don't know. Talk a little bit about that. Okay. Well, even in my first years of teaching, there was a regional meeting in Atlanta and that mm-hmm. was the first NCTM meeting I had ever gone to. And it was a regional meeting and I was a wonderful meeting. I, when I moved to Atlanta, I, I went to some of the Georgia Math Council meetings and they mm-hmm. have their own niche and yeah. wonderful area where they did math meetings every year. But going to the the NCTM meeting in Atlanta opened up a whole new world. I mean, you met lots of people who were like me, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, they were interested in teaching and, and they were there for a reason. And then even more when I was getting ready to do my dissertation at Georgia State, I went to an NCTM regional in Knoxville. And that's where I was, I found the Mira. The Mira is the red plastic geometry tool Uh that you can do transformational geometry with. And I was writing a dissertation, I thought, in geometry, and it turned out to be on transformational geometry. And that wound up being one of the tools that we used because we did a, I did a research study where we took a group of teachers and taught them in two different ways. One was with tools and more like you would teach with kids. We use the mirror as a primary tool to let them discover transformational geometry. And then we taught them the math research side. I mean, not the research, the pure math side of transformational geometry. And then after one semester, we switched them and tried to discern any differences. And it was really, it was an amazing thing to me to learn. The people who were doing the easy, if you will, methods type course uh, were always going, well, this is fun, but how do I know any of it's true? Mm. You know, and the math people were going, well, this is okay, but you could never use this with kids, you know? <laughs> and by the end of it, there was no difference in, in what they thought of it and how they learned. So my study didn't prove a whole lot, I guess, but uh, <laughs> it was one of those things where you learned a lot along the way. Yeah, yeah. And I think we had, well, we had about 20 teachers involved in it in the Atlanta and DeKalb County schools and it was great. It was a great awesome. study. So um, you have, so, you know, all these experiences in, you know, as a teacher, as a teacher, a math teacher, educator, as, um, and, and thinking about the professional organizations, but, you know, and I was trying to, it was, you know, talking to you and like saying like, Hey, I got some ideas about questions. And, and one of them really, really piqued your interest in thinking about because you've done a lot of writing you talked about with the Montana mathematics enthusiast and, and, and helping out with the, the, the different journals and whatnot, but how has your teaching changed when you started writing or writing curriculum? And we could, we should get into your curriculum writing as well, because there's some pretty cool stuff as well. Well, Joel, it, it's changed in lots of ways. And I was thinking about that, you know, even from the beginning, those activities that we were doing in the Montana math enthusiast, just as an example. Um, There were three of us teaching the math ed courses for, there were three math courses that prospective elementary teachers had to take in Montana at the University of Montana. And it was, when we started it, pretty much lecture, not very hands-on. That was just the style of teaching. It Mm -hmm. wasn't that any one of the three of us who were teaching it actually believed that, but I started writing with uh, Rick Bilstein and Shlomo Liebeskin, and we wrote uh, problem-solving approach to mathematics for elementary teachers. And that book first came out, got almost 40 years ago now. But uh, we started just writing class notes to use with our classes. When we started, there really was not much of an intent to write a book. Yeah, yeah. It was these were things that we want to do with our classes. So we started trying to incorporate activities, but we didn't want to lose the math at the same time because that symbiosis of the pure mathematics and knowing why things work as well as here's some ways you might teach this um, was super important. So from the very beginning, way back then, that was something that we did. And this this dates us in that book, but I used to type the notes that we were writing 
on a typewriter in my wife's high school because there was a good typewriter there and we didn't have one and computers weren't along yet. So, but that led to something else in that class. We were always looking for new tools. Okay. So one of the new tools, the computers were coming along clearly, but logo was an Mm -hmm. incredible geometry program that Shlomo had a sabbatical and had been in Boston and worked with some of the people there where logo was being developed. And we got a grant in about 1981 to develop logo materials and primarily for use with our teacher prep classes. And so just real quick, just to describe just for people that don't, because I remember logo, but it was, logo was like a turtle that you could then turning. create. It was a what? learning tool for, t- for geometry and you used a, an object and it was a turtle and gave it directions. Like uh, if you want to do a square, it's go forward so much, turn right 90 degrees. Okay. And repeat that four times. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that was a square. That's that was great. the way it was defined. Uh, but if you think about it, that got you the four sides had to be congruent and had four right angles. There was mm-hmm. it was a quadrilateral with four four congruent sides and four right angles. Yeah. And so then the logic thing, okay, so what would be a triangle or what would be a hex? I mean, right. like, so then for kids, like all of a sudden this thing builds on itself. All right, and I just remember that, like, oh, could you make this square? And now could you do other things? So you had you made materials for that. We wrote books that program. a awesome. logo. <laughs> and I mean, that obviously affect the teaching because we were using that in the teaching and that eventually became part of our book, our teacher prep book. Nice. Uh, so that, that's just one piece of it. But also along the way, and even after being NCTM president, another thing that came up in writing, I got to be a part of the figure this campaign, which in my mind, was a real turning point Mm. for me and for some of the teachers. There were about 15 to 20 teachers who worked on that project. Gail, Gail, uh, God, I'm blanking. Jack and Gail Burrell was was the project director. It was a grant through NCTM, and it was for a grant to NCTM and a public relations firm in D.C. And the idea was that we would write materials that parents could use with their middle school age kids at home. And along the way, one of the things that we decided had to happen, we were writing what we thought were great math problems, but since this is to be used at home and with families, we the public relations firm said, okay, we have to try these out. So one of their trial groups was they would use grandparents and their kids, I mean, their grandkids, and have them come together and they'd look at our problems. And it eventually got to the point that if they would look at a problem and say, eh, who cares? That problem got pitched. <laughs> I mean, it was that simple oh, wow. because that said our math was too hard or it was not explained very well. Yeah. So they couldn't, they didn't know what was going on or it had no interest to them. Yeah. And so that was something else that, that changed teaching because it made you think about the language you were using. Mm. You didn't want to do away with, the math language or the correctness of it, but at the same time, you had to pose problems in ways that it might draw in the kids and their families. And that wound up being about 80 problems that we had published in Spanish and in English and NCTM still has on its website. And it's a great collection. Now they're dated, but I'll give you just one example along the way since yesterday was International Women's Day. Um, one of the problems was, will women ever earn as much money as men? Okay. Mm. And I mean, and that ended, I mean, the publication the data that we had went to about 1991, but it showed that the gap was closing. But then the question was, could kids look at this data and ever decide, you know, would they ever get together or mm. cross or, yeah, you yeah. know. I so, love to think about these. Still a good problem. <laughs> yeah, already these two things. So like even thinking about the writing of your class notes, it's almost like you had to write, I don't know, for lack of a better word, almost like proofs or, or justification statements for here are these teaching moves that we want you to do when you're doing your class notes or whatever. They're the things for doing teaching with Lola. Like I need to explain what you're doing, but I also need to explain why you're doing it. So it's like you're justifying this teaching move for why it's important for this thing. But then even thinking about then your problems that you're creating for the figure this, like I mean, your audience, I mean, thinking about your audience and how it grabs them and interested to them, or if it's too, you know, the, the complexity and all that sort of thing like that, paying attention. I mean, 
these are things, you know, we should be doing as a teachers all the time, but you have, you had like, you had people on the other side rather than just your own internal critic, like, like offering feedback all the time. So that those, I mean, that, that writing probably would very informative to your teaching. Well, one of the things that happened, especially with figure this, and I think this is important. We had one of our advisors was then the public relations person at NCTM and Eileen was her first name and I won't use her last name, but anyway, uh, it almost got to the point Eileen could tell us what parents and families were going to say about the problem. Mm -hmm. And if Eileen looked at a problem and pitched it, you know, in her mind, we might as well throw it away Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it was, it was just that she had that much insight as a non-math person into these problems. And it made us rethink kind of what we were saying and how we were saying it. It wasn't that the problems were necessarily bad, but could you ask the same problem and pose it in a way that would make more sense or be more interesting to the kids? And it's a lot like trying to use the real world in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that definitely had influence, influence in later stuff that I worked on as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I did get involved with, or two things actually, with Gail Burrell, uh, who worked for the Park City Math Institute, she invited me to come with a high school teacher at, because they brought they had an international seminar. And in that international seminar, they usually chose up to six countries and a university math ed person or someone who was interested in mathematics education from the university level and a teacher. Nor, when we were started this, it was normally high school teachers. So there was a university math ed person and a high school teacher. And one of the things we tried to look at there was to write briefs about issues that were worldwide issues in mm-hmm. mathematics education, which made us look internationally, not just yeah. at the United States. Um, and before it was over, I worked there for about 12 summers and it was actually a little longer than 12 summers, but we didn't have meetings in years that there were, were ICME International Congress of Mathematics Education meetings. We took those summers off and went to the meeting. But we wrote lots of briefs, and those are still available online. You have to hunt them now, but they are available online and through the Park City Math Institute and the Institute of Advanced Studies in Princeton, because they're the ones that sponsored that that thing and we worried about the math side there we worried about what we were writing and we're worried about it from an international level so we were trying to pick out issues that really had kind of an international importance Um, one of them being something as simple as what's the place of function one of the things that surprised us when we're working on complex numbers was that there were countries that didn't even talk about complex numbers in high school at all I mean, and we didn't know it. Our northern neighbor, Canada, at that point, when we were working on it that summer, they didn't talk about them at all. They'd basically taken it out of the curriculum. So, and we learned how curriculum, you know, was changing in different places. And it seemed always like the U.S. curriculum had been pretty static, but it really hadn't, not when you dig down and look at it. Um, I'll give you one more example because this kind of led into some of the briefs and things that we wrote there that had to do with statistics. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, and this was truly the dark ages, but other than drawing graphs and looking at bar graphs and circle graphs and knowing what a mean was, that's truly about all the statistics I had in, in high school. I mean, it just wasn't there. Now we know they're AP stat courses and we know that they're alternate college prep courses that are in stat oh, yeah. that are taught in high school. And that, that's been a huge movement in the U.S. curriculum and continues to be and should be. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the most used things. Well, I remember that. Um, so I taught with Core Plus. Um, yes. And so that was one of the curriculums that was a curricula that was developed to um, – enact basically the 89 standards if i remember correctly right and so to say hey what is it what would it actually look like to have a curriculum based off of this stuff and so getting a chance to interact with jim Fay and sort of things and i remember i was this thing i was teaching a my sophomore level class in that curriculum and we were talking about uh correlation coefficients like pearson and spearman and stuff like that and you know and really using like the pro like 
calculating those things and having a grad class where we were doing the same exact thing, like a grad level stats right. class. And it was like, it was because most of the folks were not getting that exposure to those things at that time in their math curriculum. And there's been bigger push on bringing some of that stuff into the curriculum, but it just wasn't there. I just, I mean, like you said, the mean, median mode and, but never seen, never even knowing why, why were stats and probability put together? Like, you're like, oh, we need to know if these are weird stats. Like, like that's, what's the probability of these? Ah, I get it now. Right. So, but yeah, it's like kind of amazing. These things that, you know, that maybe that's like with the idea about complex numbers, like that you're just, Hey, you assume like, here's why that things are, we're just handed something and you're not questioning why versus like, now you have this international group where you get to say like, oh, this is what, what are some things that people are dealing with? Or what are some things that do some comparisons across? That's, that's an awesome perspective that you got to have. It was, it was, it was truly a great experience. Uh, and I, you mentioned core plus, so I'll throw something else in here too. One of the things that we did in Montana, and this was with the Montana Council of Teachers, Mathematics, University of Montana, Montana State, State Department, and it wound up being the whole university system before it was over. But we applied for a grant. It was a state systemic initiative. And our goal in that was to try to rewrite completely a high school mathematics curriculum based on math and science and comparable to core plus. Mm-hmm. But we we took a different tactic. I mean, we instead of using many of the traditional topics, we actually sat down with a blank piece of paper and said, if you could start over, how would you do this? And we spent hours and hours and hours trying to figure out what was important. Why were we ordering things the way they were? I mean, we already basically knew it didn't have to be Algebra 1, Geometry, Algebra 2. The initial 1989 standards had suggested integrated mathematics, and we finally decided that that was the tactic that we'd use. We'd use an integrated, we'd write an integrated mathematics curriculum. We would use the strongest technology that we could find to write that curriculum and have kids learn to use it and to do math problems. And basically, it was turning the whole world kind of upside down in mathematics at that stage for us. I mean, it had been done in other places, but it was rarely done in the United States. And we wrote six levels, six years worth of curriculum, okay, wow. trying to write a curriculum with different tracks that if kids, we thought every kid should be have access to four years of mathematics in grades nine through 12. And if they didn't like math, but later decided that they did like math. We wanted tracks that they could follow through to get to the point that they could do college level mathematics when they got out of it. Um, That was pretty interesting because when we started with our initial ideas and described it, we had a very different model in mind and we had an advisory committee. And when they got together for their first meeting, we were basically just doing two tracks through this Mm -hmm. thing. And we were told right off the bat, that if we did that, we would likely have a curriculum that would have a white track, if you Mm. will, and a non-white track. Mm. And it made us rethink the whole thing. This was like a month before we were to start writing on this stuff. So it was back to the drawing board and try to figure out what we could do and how we could make this work. In that curriculum, one of the one of the emphases that we wanted was to write a mathematics curriculum that involved Native American materials, specifically for Montana, because there were seven reservations at that time. And we wanted to make sure that we were recognizing and using that rich history to try to write it in some of our math problems. So it made us think our initial thing was to put a computer in every classroom, you know, so the kids could use them. Sounds astonishing now, but at that point, and this was in a 1992, yeah. it would have cost about $10,000 a classroom to outfit mm-hmm. a classroom for what we were yeah. envisioning. Before it was over, the TI-92 calculator, which wound up not being super used for a long period of time, but that replaced the computer end of it. And then before it was over, there were other things along the way, the TI-82, 83, 84, (laughs) Inspire, uh, 
all those were coming out. But we were really using technology. We said there had to be a stat program in there. There had to be a geometry program in there. Uh, we had we wanted a computer algebra system in there because we thought kids should have access to all that. It's interesting. Like I'm thinking of like the the 2000 edition of the standards, and I'm thinking about the principles. And you think about you know equity and access, and then the connections, and then technology. Like all these principles that like uh, I'm hearing, like that are that are you know, emerging through this writing of this curriculum and thinking about all the different issues that you're trying to get at. And like, wow, like, I mean, the perspectives that you had in doing that, I don't know, like, and just thinking about the, the, the intention and the intention and, and the intention of going into the curriculum, but then also know, understanding what you wanted the outcome to be and having good people around you saying, Hey, if you do this, the outcome might be something you might not want. And so how do we make some adjustments or how do you uh, leverage the assets of, of the community and thinking about how do we incorporate these contexts that are really rich in history and, and into our curriculum as well? Like there's, I don't know, there's just a lot of power in, in what you're describing. Well, the good part about it is, I mean, in order to make that curriculum work, even in Montana, we had professional development as a core chunk mm. of what we had to do to get teachers ready for it. Because yeah. we were asking teachers to change nearly everything, what they taught, how they taught, the tools they were using, and the whole bit. And there were there were phenomenal people who worked with us on this program all the way. It wasn't just me. I mean, Maurice Burke and I co-directed that project, but we had an incredibly strong team that included at that point a public relation, not a public relations person, but we had a committee to help us interact with the communities because that became a huge part of it. Um, and one of the people on that committee or co-chair of that committee was a member of the house of representatives in Montana, not oh. an educator at all, but yeah, a member yeah. of the house of representatives. And we didn't back off from using controversial subjects. I mean, you think about 1992, one of our topics was a statistical look at AIDS Mm. And there was a unit on that. And we had to send letters to parents before that was taught saying, we're going to do this. If you have an objection to your kid doing this, then mm. we need to talk to you and show you what we're doing. And for that, the Montana Math Council basically won an award in Montana from the AIDS group. Yeah. So it's a state award for a math curriculum, which was unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> but but when I think about like the teaching you know, like I was really interested in when I got into docs, my doc program, teaching math for social justice. And, you know, that was looking at what Rico Gustine was doing in what, 2005, 2006, 2003, right. maybe. And you're doing, you're talking about doing that, in, you know, 10 years beforehand, like really addressing some, I mean, hey, this is the, this is, why can't we use mathematics to analyze and question the world? And so there you go. One of the things that was developed, it was developed by a high school teacher, uh, Terry Serrata, and and others, but I mean, Terry worked on this, but there was a game that we put together using Skittles and it was really with exponential growth, but it, if one weren't protected, then it was a way to show just how fast that AIDS pop, that the spread of a disease could happen is the yeah. best way to say that. Yeah. Okay. But it's still a phenomenal game. I loved yeah. it. I've used it many, many times in many different places. But uh, it, it was just something that just the whole way to think about math and the real world and what was going on. One of the things that's pretty pertinent for today, one of our modules was about the Ogallala Aquifer, okay, which runs under where the Keystone Pipeline mm. would have gone had it been built and it was had to do with what we'll do when the well runs dry <laughs> was the name of the module that we used, but it really had to do with how much water was being used. And we talked about pollution and how that could affect it. Yeah. And I mean, that's very timely still. Even right, today. Right. Absolutely. Um, no, that's, that's excellent. Like, and I guess too, what, what other, um, in, and the thing is, I, th I also to stress, this was in Montana and you couldn't right. just have a zoom call PD session. Like, <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, I just, the mobilization that you had to have, you know, just with, with getting, getting, like you're saying, getting into communities and helping them see, cause you know, and 
I know from looking at core plus too, again, it was really different from the way I was taught and to get people to the frontline person, the teachers to be able to be comfortable in, you know what, I'm not going to be up at the board all the time. Like there's going to be some investigation. I've got to be that warm demander to, you know, promote productive struggle, all those words we know now, but like, that's what you were basically, you know, saying like, Hey, this is, this is what it's going to look like. And I don't know what, what were some things you learned in that process? Well, uh, there were so many things that were learned along the way. It's hard to know where to start. One of the things that NSF pushed us to do, the National Science Foundation, with that curriculum, we had written it for Montana. I mean, that was, it was a state systemic initiative, but then we were looking to try to get people to use it in other places. But they wanted us to try it out in big cities. So we tried it out. Uh, we actually tried it in about three places. But Cincinnati and El Paso were the two that come to mind first. Um, very different populations from Montana. Yeah. Uh, highly Hispanic in El Paso. A lot of Black Americans in Cincinnati. And it was really interesting the way it was received by teachers and the way the kids perceived it. Mm -hmm. um, in El Paso, it worked very well. Uh, in fact, amazingly well, we thought. Uh, in Cincinnati, because of a number of things that happened there, not quite so well. And I mean, we had to write all this down and talk about why. But uh, just the whole way the curriculum was received and the way the teachers received it was it was challenging and interesting to us along the way. I mean, you know, because I mean, we really were, as you said, we we're talking about changing what they teach, how they teach and the whole bit. And it was interesting to see how it was received there. And we did rewrite things um, based on the results and the feedback that we got yeah. from those places. Right. By the way, in, in that regard, in, in terms of it was professional development as well as writers, when we were hiring writers to help us, and we used probably 100 over about five years, there were high school teachers from all over the U.S. Oh. They weren't just Montana. We were having them come to Montana to write. But... That was interesting, too, to, you know, to get people from different places with very different viewpoints and getting them to come together and write. Um, wow. The same, that was a microcosm of what was happening in the schools. You get a teacher to lead in schools. You needed one, but you really needed at least two to have someone to talk to Some because yeah, yeah. many of the teachers were opposed to it. They didn't want to change what they were doing. Right. Teachers that were nearing retirement, many of them didn't want to change anything. They had been successful in their way and they didn't want to change to something like that yeah so it was challenging it was always challenging that's why i'd say like if people have a you know if someone might be listening to this and like i'm not quite sure what those types of problems are. i mean those the the problems that you would experience in those curricula i mean there was one that we did um that was about buying shoes or, or no buying like jerseys for sports teams and like you had to figure out based off the sizes and the prices for each size and then you figure out like which which team w would go to which outfitter to get their jerseys based off of price and it was like after you you know you do all the calculations figure it out like and then you just figured and and then you know kids would do that and all of a sudden like oh put your answers in the table oh you just learned how to like to to multiply two matrices and it's like right and and, right. and like wait what and like versus like to teach it straightforward, you're like, wait, I'm going to multiply, then I'm going to add. And then that's what, what's the side? And like, no, it made total sense. And it was like one of those things where like these well-crafted problems that get you to a point where like, hey, you just did this. Like, it's not like trickery, but it's like, you just did it. Here's the label for what you just did. And like, and now it makes sense. And now I have, you know, just like with the Skittles problem, probably the same thing where you're like, oh, wow. Like I, this concept in this context, put it together. And now I have this, great idea about this mathematical concept, right? It was, it was, it was a huge learning experience for everybody involved. And mm -hmm. Maurice Burke and I, as I said, directed this, but we had so much help from so many people and we learned, I mean, we would have meetings once a month, at least in Helena of kind of the advisory organizing group for that grant and at every meeting, you left challenged by something, yeah. okay? It might be from the public relations side. It might be from the mathematics side. It might be from the professional development side. Or it could be by the assessment side. 
you know, and the curriculum was always a challenge, but those other issues had to feed into it as you were getting that to go along. And as I said, we were a microcosm of what was happening in schools. They weren't having to write the curriculum, but they were having to work with other teachers. And we had schools where there was one group of teachers who wanted to teach with the traditional math methods. We had another group of teachers who were willing to try this new stuff that we were doing. And there were interesting results out of that. I mean, mm-hmm. Kerry Serrata wound up writing a great dissertation on that one yeah. where he followed, it was, a, it was a, basically a longitudinal study where he yeah, followed yeah. kids from entering the ninth grade until they left in the 12th grade. And only even with hints into what happened in college, because mm-hmm. one of the things we wanted to know was were we doing something that would really harm kids when they got to college. Yeah. And ironically, one of the things that we found out is most of the students who took our materials were better off to go right ahead and go into the freshman level classes without taking entrance exams, Mm. which the colleges didn't like too much. But I mean, they had success once they were in the courses. If they were given a traditional entrance exam that many math departments use, they might not score as well. So it was it was it was it well it was it was always a challenge. One thing that I would add for anybody who's interested in looking that up, Montana Math Council has now gotten all those materials back. They were published by Kendall Hunt, but when Kendall decided to go in a different direction for some of their materials, Montana Math Council got all the materials back and they're available free online. Nice. Anybody can go use them if they want to. They're they're slightly out of date now, obviously, because we're we're 30 years later from the time <laughs> <Yeah>. we started. <laughs> yeah. But we'll put a link to that. We'll have show notes for this episode. Okay. We'll put a link to that there. Um, so, and I didn't, I want to honor your time, but I also I just, you know, given that you had a chance to think about it, is there any other like learnings or things that you wanted to make sure to share with regards to writing and thinking about your teaching? Well, one of the things that I will go ahead and say this about writing, writing in mathematics, I've always thought was important, okay, mm-hmm. for for me, but also for kids. I think when they write about what they're doing, and that was one of the things that was pushed in the NCTM standards at all levels, is to get them to write about what they were doing. You truly knew if they had learned something mm-hmm. when they wrote about it, and you read what they wrote. The grammar might be off a little. We tried to teach that along the way, too. One of the things that we did learn was that our materials, we wrote at grade level for reading or close to grade level. And it helped reading scores as much as it did math scores yeah. in some cases. So that was, an, that was an interesting aside that nobody had expected. But it's one of those things that came out. But yeah. just having a group of people you can talk to and work with and meet with. You mentioned the center here on Ole Miss's campus where we met. That was a great center for meeting other people in person and talking about articles or whatever. You know, um, that's that's something that I don't think anyone can downplay. Right. I think that's one of the biggest things that COVID, one of the biggest effects that COVID has had on teachers it's hindered their ability to get together and talk. Yeah. And Zoom meetings work, but it's not quite the same. Right. So, well, and even to talk, and like you said, with your initial thing with regards to, um, you know, some of the professional organization stuff, whereas getting to get like, basically everyone like raises their hand and says, I'm a math teacher and I want to talk about math teaching. And it's like, you know, not going to, because, you know, sometimes Johnny, when we go to parties, you know, the, hey, I'm a math teacher. It might not be as well-received, but to go to a place like, hey, we're all in here to, together. We want to talk about Matthew. Let's go for it. Let's dive in. Let's get, let's go deep into it. So I love it. Well, it's, NCTM certainly was a major portion of my life. One of the things that you had mentioned that um, I know I'm, we're running out of your time too, and you can edit this any way you want to, but you talked about us meeting and we did wind up working on a MET grant together, mm-hmm. a mathematics education trust that's sponsored by NCTM. And for your listeners, the next deadline for application for MET grants is May 1st. Okay. Uh, the, there is the total application process and a list of all the MET grants uh, 
They're on the NCTM website at www.nctm.org slash MET. Yep. And it takes you right to the site. And if you just look at grants and awards, and I checked it this morning just to be sure that I wasn't making stuff up, but action research is there for math educators. Usually it's tied with a teacher mm-hmm. and the use of tools and technology, which we've talked about. There's a grant there for that. There's a grant for future leaders, math teachers who want to move forward in an organization or some, or just be leaders in their school. And then there are several large uh, grants for pre-service teachers that are floating around and the applications are due May 1st. Uh, And also there's some for just math educators themselves for their own professional development, many different kinds. And they range in size from, well, some have max, max is set on them. But there's one new grant that was put in that I helped work on with some other colleagues, Jim Grant, I mean, Jim Gates was one of the um, longtime leaders and the executive director of NCTM. And when he died, some of us got together and put together a fund. It won't last forever, but it is a fund that college teacher educators can apply for and get, it takes a little bit of matching money in there, but you can get grants to buy student memberships. Oh, beautiful. Or, for your students. Um, it's called the Jim Gates Fund. So I'd encourage any math educators to look at that. Yeah, yeah. And application processes for the MET grants are typically easy. We used to say that most proposals are not more than 10 pages. No. Well, no. Uh, or five, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was usually the case. I will say that there are some $10,000 grants that those probably take a little bit more, but they're still not very long. Uh, there's one sponsored by TI. There are a variety of them. Um, and one of the things that I've tried to do, and I don't mind saying this, is try to give back to NCTM. We recycle, NCTM recycles money through its MET grants. Whatever they're given, they invest and they recycle it. Um, they encourage people to do things to endow grants or to give money for grants or stuff like that. And Carol and I have worked and we've set one up that won't be available until we die, but, <laughs> but we have endowed one that should be there in the future at some point. We hope we're around for a little while longer, yeah. but, right. but we encourage people to do things like that. Yeah. We talked about been a big part of my life and this oh, is something yeah. that we encourage people to do. I was just saying like, if we're, you know, purpose of this podcast is to learn how to teach better. And like you're a math, edu- math teacher, math educator, and looking to teach, but there's probably an opportunity on that page that where Absolutely. you can do that. So, and the next deadline after May 1st, by the way, is November 1st. And it's a, there are a very different set of grants. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you keep looking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Johnny, for uh, taking us on this journey, like uh, helping us to see all these different experiences and things, different advice and things. But any any final words that you want to share before we sign no, off? No, I just apologize for wandering all over the place. No. So much, but <laughs> this is fun. It's a wonderful you, journey. Paul. I appreciate you letting me do this. Awesome. Thank you so much, Johnny. Hey, you take care. There we go. There it is. There's my uh, conversation with uh, Johnny Lott. Um, Again, just a pleasure. <laughs> what a what a cool coincidence that he's in the town uh, uh, where I get a job <laughs> as a as a professor um, almost twelve years ago. Well, eleven years ago, almost twelve. Yeah, we're rounded up to twelve now. Um, and the fact that he landed here um, and and get a chance to interact with him on a fairly regular basis, it's just a pleasure. It's just a pleasure. And again, taking advantage of those opportunities to have those conversations and then the way that he's so giving with his time and then wanting to connect you to resources. And I, I, it's kind of the spirit of this podcast. It's, it's kind of the spirit of Johnny Lott and, and wanting to do that for others. And so um, – and, and the thing is, the MET grants, the ones that he told me about and the opportunity that I wanted to share with you all, if you are a, a teacher of mathematics or even if there's some of these grants that connect to mathematics, so if it's art and mathematics, there, anyway, there's lots of opportunities out there and there's two cycles of, of grant submissions. I'll put a link in the show notes. Take advantage of them. This is one of those ways to think about how to teach better. Maybe there's some funding that could give you the space in order to do that or just maybe the funding becomes a catalyst to 
connect with another teacher like, hey, maybe we should apply for this. And even if you don't get the funding, you've got that opportunity to work together to think about it or even just to have a conversation about some needs and things that you could do to improve your teaching. And, and those are valuable in and of itself. So even just the practice of applying could be something valuable as well. Anyway. Just love that we got to have that conversation. So uh, that is all we have. If you're looking for those links, again, lots of links from this episode. They'll be in the show notes. You can find that at amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 69. You can also support the podcast in many, many ways. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Um, We love those reviews. So if you do that or just even if also too, you could share it as well. If you found this valuable, you think, hey, I know a math teacher that could apply for one of these grants or, hey, they should know about who Johnny Lott is and some of the cool things he's done and some of the learnings he had from his own teaching. So go ahead and share it wherever you listen to the podcast. Just share share the podcast with them. Um, you can also subscribe to the Amazon Planet download. Again, we want to share opportunities like uh, applying for these MET grants in the, the download. And I think that that means that there's going to be a new one coming out. So if you want to get that, go to AmazonPlanet.com. There's lots of places where you can join the email list. Go ahead and do that. You can also follow at Amazon Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or you can also like the Amazon Planet Facebook page. So all the different updates come through the social media or through the Amazon Planet download. You can also check out the Amazon Planet store, Amazon Planet bookshop. Links are in the footer at AmazonPlanet.com where your purchases support the production costs of the podcast. All right. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. Thanks to Johnny Lott for sharing his time and expertise. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. Thanks to Matt for the last episode as well. Love that doing that one. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you've been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.